The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. O gracious light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices, O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. Amen. Well, I had another sermon halfway written for this evening, and it was great. It really, it really captured all the incredible echoes of the Old Testament in Mark's telling of the Transfiguration, and I tried to do justice to the theological figures and images of light and cloud and mountaintops. And all of that is there. And perhaps we can consider it together on the Feast of the Transfiguration, which is this summer, on August 6th. But this evening, as we conclude the season of Epiphany, and we consider the transfiguration that happened in the presence of Christ's most trusted disciples, I have one question that I can't get out of my mind. What is the good news of the transfiguration? There's enough mysticism and glory and dazzle here to short-circuit our brains. This is one of those episodes in Scripture that the early church fathers especially really camped out on because it is so rich. But tomorrow is Monday, and as Garfield the cat taught us, Mondays are the worst. So what is the good news of all of this spectacle? After all, it was just the three disciples. It wasn't even the twelve. How is this good news for the whole world? Many of you feel at a certain level as if you are dwelling in a land of great darkness. Whether it's simply the confusion of modern life, trying to figure out what you're going to do with yourself when you grow up, or perhaps you're dealing with the pain of loss and tragedy or a bewilderment that would be so frustrating if it weren't so heartbreaking and exhausting. Death, illness, 
joblessness, wounds from the past, and anxiety for the future, fractured relationships around every corner. Call it the land of darkness, call it the dark night of the soul, the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you are there, and you have been there for a long time. So what is the good news of the transfiguration? I think the beginning of an answer is that the good news of the transfiguration is that the darkness that many of you are now experiencing is powerless to withstand the brightness of the uncreated light, which is Jesus Christ himself. As we saw in our Old Testament lesson, Elijah. Do you guys remember what what story this follows on the heels of? This dude has just called down fire from heaven to burn up a soaking altar and sacrifice as he is doing battle against the prophets of Baal. He has a king and a queen that have been trying to kill him for years. He has been hiding out in caves or with the poorest of the poor. And it's almost like he's, he's maybe like the early signs of manic depressive, right? He has this incredible, literally probably where we get the phrase mountaintop experience of God's power. And the next day, he is just empty. And he has nothing left to give. Or consider St. Peter, who wrote our New Testament lesson this evening. In our gospel text, Peter is about to go through immense darkness. Jesus will tell him in a few short weeks that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. For those of us who talk too much, I like to consider Peter as a sort of patron saint of foot-and-mouth syndrome. He's just always sort of talking and talking himself into, into trouble. Just prior to the transfiguration story that we had read for us this evening, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets come back from the dead, they say. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with what is only, as Jesus makes clear, a revelation from God himself that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the entire world has been waiting for, the Son of God. And within 90 seconds, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter has given up everything to follow Jesus. His career, his income, the safety of staying home and not attracting the attention of the Roman occupiers, all of that is long gone. It's as if he packed all of his eggs into one basket and then just dropped it to follow this man, Jesus, for reasons that really aren't easy to explain. One has to imagine the questions from his friends or his wife or his parents were rather pointed. Why did you follow Jesus? He told me to. 
I mean, have you lost your mind, Peter? Peter has banked everything on whatever revolution Jesus is, you know, fingers crossed, going to bring about. And the reason that Jesus calls Peter Satan just prior to our gospel text is because Jesus has just gotten a lot more explicit about what exactly his revolution is. And boy, is it a doozy. Peter was not prepared to hear the details of this mission. Because Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem because he must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious establishment and be killed. Mark tells us he said this to them plainly. And the tug of war within Peter, the anxious whispering in his mind, did I do the right thing in giving up everything to follow this guy? It all just sort of bubbles over in a boil and we're told that he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine the various iterations of what in the world are you talking about? You can't die. No, 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 no. That's not how this goes. And by the, by the way, I don't think this is all just self-preservation either. Peter deeply loves Jesus. And it's, it's almost as if the force of his love causes him to reject any hint that Jesus is actually going to die. He, he just cannot process it. This tug of war becomes more and more pronounced when they enter Jerusalem. In the upper room, Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet and then spins right around and asks him to wash his entire body. In the garden, Peter goes from falling asleep to slicing off the ear of one of the servants in the arrest party. And then in the courtyard, he goes back to lying and denying to a little slave girl that he doesn't know anything about Jesus. The darkness into which Peter descends is like a tomb from which he feels he may not ever emerge. I mean, this is why he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. It's a little bit hidden in our text, but when he says, when he starts to speak, right? Again, he's one of these guys who just can't help himself. This is an insane scene. Two of the most famous ancient leaders of Israel are suddenly just appearing in bodily form. There's the cloud of the Shekinah glory descending and the voice of God is speaking. And Peter says, oh yeah, it's good that we're here. Whew. I know my way around a hammer. Why don't I build us three tabernacles? What he's trying to do is he's trying to get Jesus to avoid Jerusalem at all costs. He's, what he's saying is basically, let's stay here and let's keep this transcendent religious experience going for as long as possible. Let's not leave Christian summer camp. Let's not leave the mountaintop experience, right? We want to stay here forever. So what is the good news of the transfiguration? It is that the darkness is powerless to withstand the brightness of the light of Christ, but it's not just that. We have to journey with Peter on this slow discovery of something deeply counterintuitive. The good news of the transfiguration is not just that Jesus Christ is the uncreated light who drives back the works of darkness and death. The good news is that he defeats darkness and death by entering into it. 
Do you see that if Peter had gotten his way, and, and we're right there with him, right? If we had all gotten our way and, had, and could have kept Jesus up there in the cloud of glory with the unbearable brightness of his being exposed, guess what? We would all know for sure Jesus is God. Everyone would know. It would be very, very clear. Jesus is the light of the world, worthy to be glorified through all the universe. But had he stayed on that mountain, our own dark valleys would crush us because they would be symbols of solitude, a certificate of our abandonment. You want God? Well, there he is, shining brightly. Just climb up that mountain and you'll find him. Good luck. The good news of the transfiguration is that Jesus won't allow us to imprison him on the mountain of glory. But instead, as Luke tells us in his version, Jesus is in this very moment of glory, discussing with Moses and Elijah his departure, his crucifixion on the mount of shame, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter descends into darkness and he discovers that Christ is already there. That's what's good about the Christian gospel. We don't just have a God of glory who exists in bright light clouds. He entered into the pain of rejection and sorrow and suffering, and death. There is nothing you can experience in this life that he has not already encountered and defeated and redeemed. Of course, we all know that Peter's life goes swimmingly after Pentecost, right? He's only imprisoned, beaten, threatened, and eventually martyred Tradition tells us, upside down. Before he was martyred, he served tirelessly as a bishop of the church that was being scattered and persecuted and nearly overrun. And it is to that suffering, scattered, run-down church that in his first epistle he writes this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You who by God's power are being guarded. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The good news of the transfiguration is that the uncreated light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.